Hello, everyone, and welcome to Edge Talk Radio. I am Angela Zabel, that's me, and I am here today with author, PhD, psychologist, Dr. Connie McReynolds. She's from California, and we're going to be talking about video games, neurofeedback, how to use all of it together, and we're going to dive in deep on some of her books and what she has out, too. So I can't wait to have her here for you to talk to her. And uh, one thing I want to talk about is who am I? Who's Angela Zabel? So I am a teacher, coach, and a medium. I have connected with spirit my entire life. I have a team in the non-physical. I share messages from a multitude of realms with people. I, and I am also a radio show host, writer, retreat host, gallery speaker, and I also do speaking engagements. I offer guidance, mediumship, intuition, online and group sessions, classes, and the Amplified Universe monthly membership has just started for groups and people who want to know who they are, how they got here, and more about us, our connection, and the world. I am here sharing knowledge with others, working with people throughout the world. You can find me on all the social media aspects. Go to my website, angelazable.com, and you can find everything from there. <laughs> and then we are here today for Edge Magazine, Edge Talk Radio through Edge Magazine. It is the leading events and media resource dedicated to all aspects of holistic living, health, and wellness, and the mysteries beyond. Sharing information, wisdom, resources committed to promoting businesses, organizations, and individuals who support our collective journey to wholeness and balance. And you can find out more about Edge Magazine at edgemagazine.net. And today we're here with Connie McReynolds. She is a PhD, a licensed psychologist, professor, certified rehabilitation counselor, that's very interesting. I think I'm going to dive into that a little deeper too. And she also hosts the podcast Roadmap to the Brain, visionary founder of the of the prominent neurofeedback clinics in Southern California. She's a proven track record of improved symptoms related to ADHD, anxiety, there's a lot of that going around, <laughs> anger, panic disorder, and conducting this, the conduit disorder, depression, chronic pain, congenitive decline, trauma, and PTSD using neurofeedback. These corrective programs can be performed in a clinic or remotely, which I am happy to hear that can also be done remotely because so many of our listeners are all around the world. So she also consults with parents and schools on government or district-sponsored or mandated programs. And Dr. Connie's wholehearted mission is to bring hope and resolution to those who are struggling with the symptoms of ADHD, their parents, and their teachers. You can find out more about Connie at ConnieMcReynolds.com, and these links will all be down below for all of you. And she also has a brief assessment through Neurofeedback on her website you can check out. She's also on Facebook and Instagram. And check out her book on Amazon, Solving the ADHD riddle. So it's the real cause and the lasting solutions for the child's struggle to learn. So check that out on Amazon. And I am so excited to have you on today, Connie. And how did you start on this journey of going with ADHD? Well, it's probably been quite a long one, actually, because um, oh, decades ago, uh, my mother taught second grade for 32 years in the same classroom. And I kind of joked that I kind of grew up in second grade. So I uh, watched a lot of what she was doing, obviously. And as I was writing the book, this story came back to me about the little boy who couldn't read. And really what she did that summer, over the summer, we lived 45 miles away from the nearest 
university and she took him. I was in tow uh, back and forth over the summer to try and figure out what was happening with him and why he couldn't read. And back in those days, they didn't know much about it, but they diagnosed him with dyslexia. And so it was kind of one of the first times I ever heard the term and she had ever heard the term, but she worked with the, the university folks and they figured out ways to kind of help him learn how to read. And I was writing this book, that story came back in and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is a link all the way back uh, to that. My aunt was a dean of a college of education. I had an uncle who was a professor. I was a professor for 25 years and really just curiosity about this started developing about 15 years ago when I came out to Southern California. They brought me out, uh, recruited me out. Part of the job was to build an assessment center and kind of a clinic. And so it started evolving out of that. A colleague told me about this thing called neurofeedback and I did some investigation, opened up a pilot project. We started working with children with ADHD and veterans with PTSD on just kind of a put it out to the community. Come on in. We have this. We're working with it. We're learning it. If you want to be a part of it, we're happy to work with you and just see what can happen. And lo and behold, we were working with this one little boy and his mother, after, you know, several sessions of this, she came in and she said, no, I just don't know if this is helping. And I was feeling a little discouraged. And so I said, well, you know, let's, let's keep looking at this. And then the next week she came in and she said, I stand corrected. <laughs> she said, I went to a family reunion with my son and all the relatives wanted to know what I had done to my son because he was so much better able to take redirection and manage himself. And she said, I stand corrected. I guess I just wasn't seeing the changes. And so it really just evolved. It was just this natural evolution that happened, questions about why certain interventions weren't working. Uh, that I write a lot about that in the book. It was the parents were coming in, they were saying, we've tried everything. We've been down all these standard traditional interventions and my child is still not learning. We still don't have any progress. Do the medications. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's side effects. Sometimes the child won't take them. I kind of heard everything. And that really piqued my interest because I thought, what is going on here? What What's happening that so many of these people who are coming to me, at least, are saying the same thing. The behavioral interventions aren't working that nothing's making a lasting change in this child's life. And over the course of 15 years, um, I think I uncovered it, <laughs> which is- I, I, love, <laughs> I love the fact that for one thing, I feel like you're, I mean, you've said your whole family is pretty much learners. <laughs> you're <laughs> always learning, always investigating and always finding to, new ways to find the answers. Yeah. And- for you to to open things up and to work with so many different people. And one thing I've got to say, and I was going to do this later, but I think I'm going to jump it in earlier. <laughs> so I looked at you through your book, the ADHD and um, the ADHD riddle. I looked through there and you had people in there where there were case studies where you were doing the testing with them and, and doing the benchmarks, showing them when they came into you after their different neurofeedback and what you had done and the difference in what they had done. I, you, it sounds like you've done so many people that you've worked with so many people. Did you study and do benchmarks with as many as you could when you started to get that benchmark? Mm -hmm. Well, it really began almost 15 years ago. And in the beginning, 
we were doing the neurofeedback. And um, if the parents were coming in saying, okay, this child's been diagnosed with ADHD or diagnosed with something, then I would run this assessment and we would get this information. And then when I started realizing it wasn't too far in, I started realizing that sometimes it was working a little bit better for some people than others. And it was working better when we ran the assessment and figured out what was really going on than it did if someone just walked in and so I don't have this, but I just want to do this. Yeah, that might work, but then I found the results were different between the two groups. And so it didn't take too long to figure out, I think there's a whole other thing going on here with a lot of people. And so it just became what we call standard operating procedure in my clinic. Yeah, you walk in the door, regardless of what brought you here, regardless of the diagnostic label, regardless of anything, you're going to do this assessment. <laughs> so we can figure out if there is something else going on besides what you're describing as the anxiety or the panic or the trauma or the inattentiveness or whatever it might be, the memory problems or whatever. And in about eight or nine out of every 10 people, indeed, it doesn't matter what the label is that they've come in the door with we're finding they actually have auditory and visual processing problems. Mm -hmm. Now we're looking at 37 areas. So it's going to be completely unique to each person. And I kind of say, these are almost like a thumbprint because no two people are going to have the same assessment results. Their brains are unique. And so that really is where it started. And then we had, then I realized, okay, we, uh, industry standard says usually 20 hours of neurofeedback training. So I thought, well, we need a checkpoint. So we kind of started that after 10 hours, we're going to come back, we're going to reassess because that gives us a good marker. It's like, are we in the ballpark here? We've we been hitting the right places. And so then I could see, oh my gosh, yes. And then there are still these other areas that maybe hadn't responded yet. So then take that data and you create the next training plan. And you do another 10 hours and then we reassess for progress wow. toward the goals that really were identified in the initial intake. And not only am I looking for just the data because people can pass a test sometimes. I mean, this really does reflect <laughs> things. But my big question was, is this making a difference in the person's life? Because it's great if it's happening here, but if it isn't translating out into their daily life, then we we need to look at something bigger, perhaps. Well, it was translating out. And that is the story of the little boy uh, that I shared first. And then there was another little boy that came in. He was like eight or nine years old. And he walked in one day and kind of long in the face. <laughs> and his parents were behind him. And I said, well, what's going on? And he looked at me and he said, well, kind of, well, it's working. I can pay attention now, even when I don't want to. <laughs> That's awesome. It was like, well, okay. <laughs> so all of us tried not to chuckle. His parents had big smiles on their faces behind him. <laughs> it just was just such a cute little guy. And I thought, oh goodness, we've <laughs> in his world, we've messed up his world because now he can pay attention in school. <laughs> he had an excuse before and you took it away. <laughs> was so cute. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> it was so cute. So it really is about does this make a difference in the person's life? As we can go all day long, you know, and run these assessments and do the interventions, but I need to know that it's working in their life. And so 
every time they come in, you know, the clinicians and technicians are kind of checking in with the child, checking in with the parent, how are things going? And you're kind of seeing, and it's going to take a little bit of time because it's brain training. So it isn't like taking the pill or flipping on a light switch. And I'll tell them that from the get-go. This isn't going to be a light switch kind of thing. This is going to be more like a dimmer switch. <laughs> so that more of a lasting, a, a very much lasting, because once mm-hmm. you're retraining your brain, you're actually putting in place. So it's going to last. It's not like you take a pill. It's kind of covering it up and you're starting over from the beginning every single day. Or yeah. when you're doing this, it's, it's a lasting change that you have in your life. I think that's huge for people. Well, it really is. Because I always tell people, we love you, but we want you to go on. (laughs) (laughs) We love you, but we don't want you here the whole time. (laughs) We really really want you to come in, get this done and go on and live your life. uh, Because that's what we're supposed to be able to do. We're supposed to be able to heal ourselves. We're supposed to be able to, you know, we might have these identified challenges, but we're supposed to be able to recover from that. Uh, to tool up the brain. And we've known for, gosh, since 1949, Donald Heave out of Canada, a psychologist, introduced this whole concept of neuroplasticity way back then. So we know that the brain is malleable. Neuroplastic means brain malleability. Uh, So it's how we learn everything. And it really is just a matter of training the brain. Once you figure out what you're looking at and then can develop a plan for it. And it sounds like you have figured out a plan for it. And I just find it funny because a lot of people, when you're dealing with things on everyday life, you don't even realize what you're missing. Just like the mother who didn't see it in her son, didn't see the changes. You don't see it in yourself. So I think that assessment is really so crucial because you you live with it every day. You don't even realize it's there anymore. And as you started doing this and Maybe you should, we should back up a little bit sure. when we talk about neurofeedback. So what exactly is that? Kind of what's the explanation behind neurofeedback? <laughs> so it's such an odd word, I think, for most people. <laughs> and so it's kind of, I like to break it down. So we're just going to go back to the, the term that most people, I think, recognize is biofeedback. And so most people have heard of biofeedback. And that came about decades ago. You had a little sensor you might clip on your finger to measure your pulse, and maybe it was counting your respirations as well. And that was called biological feedback, which was shortened to biofeedback, which means if you get feedback about how your body is running, can you, through a concerted effort, shift that? And so people learned they could. If they engaged in more relaxation, deeper breathing, relaxed their muscles, you could see a direct relationship to the pulse and the respirations with that. And so it's just biofeedback. And so this is called EEG biofeedback. So the EEG stands for a really long word called electroencephalogram, which is why we say EEG. (laughs) It's much easier to say EEG. Much (laughs) Much easier. But the same principle, except on this situation, we're actually able to measure brain waves with a little flat sensor that's kind of stuck on the scalp in a little area using a little tacky wax stuff and a little clip on the ear to ground it. And with that, scientists figured out it's not unlike when you go for an EKG. Maybe you go in for and they put a little, you know, a little sensor, they kind of put a little tacky thing on. It's reading your body. And this is the same kind of thing. This is just reading your brain waves. The beauty of this 
is that it feeds it into the computer. Nothing comes back, which is why it's neurofeedback and it isn't something else. So I just always want to clarify for people, there are systems out there that are administering slight electrical currents to the brain or other things. Well, in the purity of the field of neurofeedback, that <laughs> that isn't really necessarily considered neurofeedback because you're actually doing something else to the brain. And with this, it's interacting with the computer. So this brain signals are sent to the computer and there might be some bar graphs or some video games running. And if you're manufacturing the right kind of brainwave that we're measuring for and training for, you can win your little video game or you can see the bars go up and down. You can see how your brain's working, which means you're getting feedback regarding your neuronal processing. So your brain processing. So you get to see and run the computer with your brain. And this nice. is where kids get kids get really hooked in. It's like you're going to get to run a computer with your brain. It's good. What? <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't want to do that? It's like, yeah, let's do this. Exactly. One. <laughs> Except when you don't want to pay attention. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and that was a deal breaker. <laughs> Love that. But most of the kids, it's kind of cute. You know, they'll come in. We're not wearing white coats, and we don't have needles. So once they figure <laughs> out they're not going to get a shot, and they're going to get to work on computers, they're pretty in for it most yeah. of the time. And so then when they figure out that they can literally learn how to run the computer games with their brain, it becomes pretty fascinating. And then what happens is a self-empowerment starts to happen with these children. Their self-confidence starts to go up because not only are we tackling those areas of weakness to make it stronger over time, but they're suddenly seeing that their brain's capable of doing something and it's doing something pretty cool because they're running a computer, they're winning these little video programs. And so it just it it just becomes kind of a non-conflict kind of way to help children gain more control over their own lives and reduce the tension and the stress, the frustration, the anger, all of those things that happen when you have children who can't follow along, can't pay attention, can't do what they're being asked to do. And I'm just going to wax a little bit into what that really means is that a lot of these behaviors are not willful, bad behaviors. I like, I like how you said that because honestly, when you're dealing with something like this, if, if there's something as adults, if there's something you can't do, you get frustrated, you get angry. You're not angry at the people around you per se. You're just angry at yourself and angry at the possibility you can't do it the way you want. And to take that, that part of it off of the table to say, let's take care of the core issue and then the rest will fall away and to give them empowerment because these, a lot of these children, they've been dealing with this their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times been told, well, your behavior, your behavior, your behavior. And, and this is like, oh, now I have it back again. I can just be me. I can just have fun. I can, I can have that control back in my life. That has to be just so huge. And I just, I'm just curious, as you've worked with so many people, so many people, so many children along the way, have you seen a lot of the difference in their confidence and who they are and who they came in as and who they leave as? Have you noticed such a big difference in them? Mm. I'm a licensed psychologist, so we can't do what I'm about to say, but I would love to be able to take before and after pictures. <laughs> I, I love that idea. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. We can't do that, obviously. But 
it has the transformation in some of these children has been so profound that they don't even look like the person who walked in the door when we started. And it just is remarkable. And I see it in adults too. So we had a woman, she was in her seventies and um, somehow people over in a fibromyalgia chronic pain group learned about me a number of years <laughs> ago. And so she came <laughs> over wanting to help. Yeah. And uh, when she came in, she was using a walker. Uh, she had an attendant. Uh, she had all the pain medication that they could give her. And she still was at a level 10 pain. Wow. And so we worked with her. I think we did about 20 hours of training. And toward the end of it, she came in and we noticed there wasn't a walker anymore. She had a cane over her wrist. <laughs> she dyed her hair purple. <laughs> and she had the attendant and she told me um, her pain uh, medicine she wasn't using anymore. And her pain was at from a zero to a one. And she said <laughs> she didn't really need the attendant, but she's keeping her because she likes the company. <laughs> so the before and after on her was incredible. And in children as well. Uh, we had a teenage girl who I think uh, she's probably in the book under the area where I had talked about children who don't have auditory or visual processing and just how profoundly impaired they are in ways that they get labeled. Oh, and it isn't necessarily true. And so she just looked, you looked in her eyes and it was as if she wasn't really there. It's just kind of grayness about her and kind of dullness in her eyes. <clears throat> Ran the assessment and she didn't have auditory or visual processing that could be measured. So wow. we did either 20 or 30 um, hours of training with her and you wouldn't even know she was the same girl. You wouldn't know. How awesome is that? There was There was no recognition between who she was before and who she was then. You know, the I, I just feel like the freedom you're giving people by doing this, freeing them from what has maybe not been working in their lives before and freeing them to, to then be able to accomplish and do what they want to do in their lives without feeling like they're held back, mm -hmm. I think is such a beautiful, a beautiful thing you're doing for so many people. And I know people have asked there's a lot of children who have been children before who are now adults who have maybe been diagnosed with ADHD before and now they're they're adults still dealing with it but not knowing how to deal with it is there a lot of adults you've worked with and how does that work with an adult well it works the same way and yes I've the youngest person we worked with is actually three so it's a very yeah. good little three-year-old who could sit at the computer knew how to use a mouse <laughs> they're much better at it than we are a lot of times and the oldest person is actually 93. So wow. I've covered everything in between. And with adults, I think back on a gentleman who showed up at my clinic a few years back. He was in his 50s. And he came in and we ran the assessment and I was giving him the results. And this gentleman didn't have any ability to hang on to auditory information. It just wasn't there. And I was giving him this and he started weeping. Wow. And he said, I have lost that he had lost so many jobs over the years because he couldn't remember what his bosses were asking him to do. And he always thought he wasn't very smart. 
And that's where everyone goes with this. So if you can't do what your peers are doing and you're working 10 times harder, everyone assumes this has something to do with intellectual ability. And it oftentimes doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. And it has everything to do with the auditory and the visual processing problems. And once we figure out what it is and we do the training, you know, routine for however long it takes for them to get where they're going, that changes. And then things are different for them. And so they're not swimming upstream all the time. They're not having to work 10 times as hard as the next person that's standing next to them. And with children, we really want to get at this early with children because it starts in elementary school. So with children, that negative self-talk starts so quickly Uh, with children just using really bad things and describing themselves. And that gets locked in after a period of time. And then the culture can't support it because the child isn't doing what the child's supposed to do. So there's this subtle reinforcement of that belief in that child that's generally not intended. And it's like, oh my goodness, we have just got to get this stopped. <laughs> There's something we can do about it. We have to get this, we have to get this out here. <laughs> it's like a, a cycle of change that just keeps going downhill because, and I've, you know, I've talked to different people where they're like, and you talk to them, they're so intelligent. And yet they they always say, well, I'm not smart. I can't, I can't hold on mm-hmm. to that information mm-hmm. or I can't, I have a hard time. So one of the things is, does this also help with the ability for relationships with people, the ability to to then be able to communicate easier with people? Is this also something oh, that yes. helps with that? Because I know there's so many people, they're like, I just feel like I can't have that those relationships mm-hmm. of, you know, friendships, different things, just because I just can't hang on to things. And is that something that you found has also helped with all of that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I published this because I started working with veterans a number of years ago with the PTSD situation. And part of what I decided to do in that study is I wanted to measure their general well-being. So I found a measure that was a little outside the typical thing that they probably had been given (laughs) over the many years (laughs) so that it wasn't just kind of measuring the stuff that they've already, you know, dealt with. And the results were so significant in tackling the auditory and the visual processing, tackling the trauma. Uh, And I know for a fact, we saved a marriage, at least one, because this was a couple that the husband said um, they hadn't taken a vacation together in like 20 years. They virtually weren't speaking to each other because, pardon me, his wife, he would get home, his wife would ask him a question and he would just blow up. It's like, I don't know why she's always picking at me. I don't know why she's always nagging me about all this stuff. And then after we worked with him and got this auditory processing stuff figured out, he came in one day and he sat down and he said, you know, I now look back on these last 20 years and I realized she was just asking for information. She wasn't nagging me. She was just wanting information. And I was overreacting. He would say, quoting him directly. And he said, uh, we're getting ready to take our first vacation together in 20 years. That's huge. That's a huge step for people. And I, I, I know a lot of people, I know people that run organizations that are dealing with the PTSD. So how is it working? How is it different working with people with PTSD versus with uh, ADHD, or is there a lot of similarities or are there some like glaring differences between that? 
Well, interestingly, you know, each person is so unique that right. it kind of doesn't matter what the label in my mind is. And that's really honing back to my CRC, my certified rehab counseling training from a few decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> back a minute. Was that, was that in Wisconsin? That <laughs> <laughs> was before Wisconsin. <laughs> That was before that. <laughs> so it's really kind of understanding that each person has their own life that they're living. And I can have P 10 people with PTSD walk in the door, 10 people with ADHD walk in the door, and they're all going to be unique and different. The similarities with both, though, oftentimes is it's hard for them to describe what's going on. Wow. They, can't, yes. they can't quantify it or describe it in a manner that helps other people understand what's going on because they've never not had this most likely or with PTSD there could have been always these underlying auditory and visual processing challenges that they never knew about and if you haven't ever lived without that you cannot know what it's like to live without it you can't describe it so you can only say gosh I must not be very smart and, you know, that's one thing I really, really love with what you're saying on all this is kind of not get rid of the labels, but don't worry about the labels and let's get at the core. It, worry about what the label is here, what the label is here, and and instead work at the core issues of what it is for you or the core. The core, it, it's some of this almost feels like, is it is some of this some somewhat of a metabolic issue also? Is that run in there or is it mainly just processing of things with the brain? Well, I will say that um, I will verify a little bit of what a child's diet is um, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. adults. I do a little bit of that because I kind of work it in in a way they don't really know quite what I'm looking at there right. um, so that we can kind of talk about it if we need to. But you know, what I'm finding is people are pretty darn savvy anymore about food choices and the use of sugars and caffeines and, you know, processed foods and this and, and particularly children, you know, parents are aware of a lot around that. Um, veterans, um, sometimes there's some addiction situations right. going on there just because of the discomfort of what's happening. And so there may be some factor of that. And I've often felt like I used to work at the addiction center at a VA in Wisconsin when I was getting my doctorate. So I worked on the chemical dependency treatment unit and I ran anger management treatment groups uh, for veterans who were court ordered right. <laughs> into that program <laughs> for <laughs> obvious reasons of problems. <clears throat> so, and I think back on those veterans and I think back, gosh, if I'd had this back then, what could we have done back then to help these folks? Because at that point I was working with a lot of Vietnam veterans um, who really are struggling. We've got a lot of veterans now that are still struggling out of these more recent wars. So that struggle is very similar. It may have been a different war, but the impact of trauma is still an impact of trauma. Yes. And that really is kind of looking at what can we do to alleviate some of that? You know, and I could wax for an hour into what's happening with the trauma brain. So <laughs> let me know where you want to go because I can take off on that tangent for a while here. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think though the trauma brain is somewhere we really need to dig in a little bit because I've got people, there's a lot of people I work with where they've had 
extreme trauma with growing up with abuses and and different things that they've had throughout their life and and trauma is trauma is a big response and i i think that's the one thing i really love with what you're doing you know it it centers around adhd and that's kind of what really drew me in it's like oh this is a really good subject for people but then i'm seeing the far reaching aspects of where this can go and i love the fact that you know, with you working with the veterans and with PTSD before, really, it gave you such a big knowledge base of what did and didn't work through the regular streamlined programs. So, you know, my big motto is you never fail and, and you're you're always learning with everything you do. But everything you learned before brings you to where you are now. And to have that base of what doesn't work really brought you into what does work. And I think it's amazing the how you've brought that through. And I just got a quick question. Mm -hmm. When you started, did you mainly start with children? And then you also, then you brought it into the veterans and people with trauma? Or were you kind of doing just more of a blanket amount of people to start? I targeted two groups children with ADHD and veterans with PTSD. Nice. Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted the dual track on that because I wanted to know, is there a way to help both of these groups of people? And I did what I kind of call a pilot project for the first year, which is, you know, we just put it out to the community and you know, sent the feelers out just let people know we're here. This is what we're doing. You know, we're learning as we go along. So if you want to come along for the ride, nice. <laughs> it's non-invasive, so we're not going to hurt you. <laughs> and, you know, really, that's something that people are like, you know, I've had people like, you're going to be interviewing this person. Do they like hook you up and, and do all this sending electricity through your brain? I'm like, no, I don't think so. But I'll double check. You know, <laughs> you know I used to, when I, before the pandemic, and I would go out and do a lot of presentations. You know, that is a very frequent question. And finally, I came up with this tagline. It's like, you know, people want to know, <laughs> we're going to shock you. It's like, we're not going to shock you, but your results could be shocking. So <laughs> I like it. That's awesome. <laughs> Because people, you know, the the you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's still in the, it's still out there. You know, Jack Nicholson. It's still out there. It's that's what people think about. And you know, that was a long time ago when we've moved a long way down the road with being able to understand the brain and how the brain works and what we can do to just enhance the functioning that we have. And so it's brain training. It's like going to the gym for your brain. So we do your little assessments, like you walk in the gym, it's like, I need to tone up my muscles. It's like, well, they're going to probably do a little assessment, figure out which machines to put you on. And so we do our assessment to figure out which programs to put you on. And then we continue to measure progress. And so once we hit the goals, the good news is you don't have to keep coming back to our gym. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So I've heard from some people, they've been afraid to do some of these like assessments. They feel like, oh, you're going to be looking into my brain and figuring all this stuff out. So kind of maybe an overview of like, what is the assessment entail? What is on the assessment? What do people do? So they, to kind of take that fear factor down mm -hmm. a little bit with what people yeah. assume. Well, and I can only speak to my clinics and how I run my program. Absolutely. So um, and that's why we're talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> so just put that out there. It's like, I'm not I, talking carte blanche about like the neurofeedback system that's out there. So with ours, 
I wanted this to just be a very relaxed process. And so people will say, well, it feels like walking into a spa here. And it's like, well, good. we like that. That's <laughs> so, <laughs> like, you know, and, and really it's the fear factor of people coming through the door and, and, it, and to, to bring that anxiety level. And you do work with anxiety. And I want to be <laughs> the anxiety, so right. much of the anxiety. Right. And, and the nice thing about this whole process, and I really learned this, you know, many years ago in my doc program with people who'd had trauma. The talk therapy approach might work for a few people, but the research now that's out there has clearly demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt that talk therapy for people with trauma, it you're you're just swimming upstream on this. And in fact, it can aggravate conditions, it can make it worse. Uh, and in many cases, again, I could wax, I could probably do a whole <laughs> segment on this, but just real quickly. Uh, part of what happens with trauma, and I think people need to understand this in a big, broader way, is that trauma registers in the brain as a pre-verbal situation, meaning when someone is having a traumatic experience, this is not going through the logical part of the brain where it's linear. This is an emotional-based response, and it's getting recorded in a scattered manner in the brain based on the emotions, the senses, the smells, the sights the sounds, whatever that is, that's the traumatic piece, that blast of whatever that trauma is, it's a blast piece, not meaning it literally, but right. the, emotional, <laughs> the emotional blast that's right. happening to the person isn't coming in in a logical step one, step two, step three. It's just, it's overpowering the person. And so the person is doing everything they can to just manage getting through whatever this traumatic event is. And then people start asking them what happened. They can't recall it in a linear manner because it wasn't recorded in a linear manner. It was recorded in what's called kind of a pre-verbal manner. So it's recorded in the emotions. And so I, I hope that someday we can really overhaul the court system in some degree, because when it comes to traumatic experiences and they're wanting the story of what's happening, the person may not be able to give the story. I, I agree because a lot of times it is, like you said, it's in fragments of so many different times and everybody, everybody's responses are different. Everybody's mm -hmm. trauma is different. Like some people, when they have a major trauma, it might be the smell of something that was in the mm -hmm. house that can trigger it later. And some might be the sight of something. Everyone is completely different mm -hmm. and have that ability to move through that, I think is so key. And I, I agree the talk where you're just reliving it again and again and again and again. I have a hard time feeling that's helping a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. you said, maybe some, I, I could be wrong. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not anything, but I just don't feel talking about those bad things consistently can help you in that manner well the people i've worked with have reported that it hasn't helped them and so that's what really spurred me on was okay what can we do and the beauty of the neurofeedback is you don't have to i'm going to take not an enormously detailed i can i've been in the field long enough that someone tells me a little bit i can intuit a little bit of it i can kind of get a feel for it i can know where they're coming from and i can get a sense for really what has happened to them I don't need them to spend 30 minutes recounting the yeah. whole process that they've gone through. It's like, let's just get the basics. What's happening in your daily life? The assessment's computer-based. Can't pass like, it. You can't fail it. It's like, it's just going to give us information. 
It's like, really? And you can just see people start to relax. And it's like, you can't pass this. You can't fail it. It's not a test. It's just understanding how your brain's working with auditory and visual information. And that's all we're doing is just figuring that out. We have some shorter ones we do for a little bit of memory and conceptualization and sequencing to just kind of round it all out a little bit. But generally in the hour and a half of the intake, I've got a really good working picture of where we're going to go with the person. I've gone over all that data with them. They're walking out the door with copies of those reports, having their questions answered, and we have a plan to move forward. Nice. And is that that? So you usually do like an hour and a half. That's the initial assessment, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can what? Do, so when you're doing it, so when you're doing it remotely, are you doing it through Zoom? How are you working with it remotely then? We are. And so I'm a licensed psychologist in California. So outside of California, I'm not going to give you a diagnosis. I yeah. can do this as an educational intervention. We can do it as just really kind of enhancing your skill sets. With okay. that, I am certified rehab counselor, which is in all 50 states. So I'm certified in all 50 states under that credential, uh, which does help me help explain things to people because I can break it down to them. Uh, we do the neurofeedback the same as if they were sitting in my clinic. Uh, so we have people assigned to them. They're never alone. They don't go through the process on their own. And we do it through Zoom. And I guess I was just thinking about this this morning. I was thinking, gosh, you know, the pandemic really forced us to get out of the box on being able to do this. You know, if I'd written this book prior to the pandemic, I would have to fly places and try and get in. And this way I can talk to you. Last night I was talking to someone down in Houston. You know, the other day I'm talking to someone in Canada. Next week I'm talking to someone in, in Europe, you know, and I don't have to fly there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I I was so happy when all when everything hit with the pandemic. I'm like, people are going online. We're finding new ways to communicate right. and put that information out there. I was so happy. I was like, this is amazing. And the mm -hmm. people like like even now, just regular, you wouldn't be able to fly here, fly there, and you wouldn't to be able to fit it in your schedule. But now you can just do a couple of hours here, an hour here, and you can reach people all around the world. So that's, and as you do the assessment, so you said you're licensed to do everything in California, but you can do the assessment with everybody around mm -hmm. the US. So what happens when you have the assessment and people, can they do the neurofeedback on remotely with Zoom? Yes. Is is that something you can take them mm -hmm. through that process? And, yes. and yes. how does how does that work then? Because it works exactly the same as if they're in my clinic. It's just there's a lease at the front end. So they have to lease the equipment. And then we have the individual yes. licenses for them. So there's a, you know, there's more of a front end load on that for people, but they're not flying out to see me either. So right. absolutely. <laughs> and absolutely, they're able to get the services from me, from my clinics uh, that we do here. And I mean, that's really the key is the ability to deliver what we do. You know, I don't, I can't speak to what anyone else does. I know there's a right. lot of neurofeedback out there. There are a lot of different ways to cut things, but um, ours, and I wrote about it in the book. And I didn't want to go too deep into the specifics of why I think this program works very well. I've been doing it for 15 years. But there are ways that we absolutely can do this. And I have been doing it. I've worked with people up and down in California. Uh, people And California is a very long state. So it is a very, it is a very long state. It takes it's a, a very time long. to drive. I've been there. It's really a big, big, long state. 
So we've got a lot of folks here that we're able to work with. And I have people local that are doing the remote at home. Uh, some of them have mobility problems. And so we can do that too. And that's the beauty of this is that once the pandemic hit, I got with the software developer and I just said, people can't get in. I mean, we're looking at another lockdown potential here. We've got people struggling. We've got to be able to get this out there. And that's what we do. So it's really just a matter of helping people identify what's going on, figure out ways that we might be able to help them. And, you know, I, again, I don't say that we get rid of diagnoses. I just say we, we tackle the problems that are in their lives and see if we can't make it a little bit better and taking them to our brain gym and give them a little workout in their brain. So <laughs> I like it. I like it. So when people are doing this remotely at home and they have got, they have the equipment to work with, is there, I know not everyone's standard. I, I understand mm-hmm. that there's not the, the base basic, but is there a, a kind of range of times people use this or are they are they getting on for like an hour at a time is it a two-hour thing how does that work and and is it like 10 sessions 20 sessions at an hour a piece or how does that just a kind of a general so our sessions are all 30 minutes and i've experimented over the years with what it was like to try to go to 45 minutes um what we found early on is that the brain gets tired just like your muscles are going to get tired at the gym so right. <laughs> what we came up with and just, again, in the front end, just kind of working with it. Uh, we had veterans that were driving two and a half hours in each way for a while. And I thought, gosh, I'm making them do two trips. Can we do a 45 minute? Well, after we had them for a while and their brain kind of got strengthened up, we did that. But that actually spurred me to open a clinic about 50 miles outside of here for a while because I thought, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel more comfortable with doing the 30 minutes two or three times a week. We typically do 20 of those sessions, which is 10 hours of okay. training. 30 minutes is pretty easy for people to fit into their schedule. And again, two or three times a week, we do that. And then uh, you know, the goal is, of course, get you in, get you out kind of deal so that you can go on. But I would say the industry standard typically is 20 hours and it gets a little confusing. I talk about 20 sessions and then 20 hours. Well, right. you're talking 40 sessions uh, for the 20 hours. Some people need more. It just right. depends on really how far they're going. It depends on how their brain works. Some people need less because maybe we're not traveling that far for them. Maybe it's, you know, just... Um, a minor tune-up instead of maybe a little bit of an overhaul. Uh, so and, and really, that's that leads into another question because some people say it's adults or you know say a business person or whatever, and they're and they're like you know I've always struggled with remembering names or or putting things together or retaining some of that information. Is this also something that would help a person like that? Absolutely. So I had I had a business owner bring his executive secretary in. <laughs> So he paid for himself and he paid for her because she was scattered. And so she was a great person and he wanted to keep her. But I was going to say it helped both him and her at the same time. Did it make a big difference in how yes. he was able to handle things after yes, that? It did. So she was living proof in the office that it worked because she was yeah. able to do things so much better afterwards. Um so, and we've worked with athletes. So I've worked with a gymnast who wanted to like tune up her 
attention or focus and her concentration before a meet. And she came nice. back with five medals, uh, worked with a major league ball player. Again, these people are pretty high up on their game, but there's always room to be able to kind of hone the skill set a little bit more. And there are a lot of stories out there of neurofeedback being used in sports teams these days. So mm, they know nice. the value of it. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's something I think for people to understand, it's not just one thing, but if there's just parts of yourself, like you said, there's always room for improvement, no matter who you are, there's always room for improvement because we're always learning, we're always growing. And maybe there's ways to help that learning be enhanced, being able to learn quicker, faster in a way that you can get things quicker. So always improvement in the human itself. And I love the fact that you're using it in so many different aspects that you that this is applicable to so many different people, not just ADHD. And I've got to say, do you find this is just a do you find that sometimes when you're working with adults who are trying to hone their skills and other things where you're kind of seeing the the symptoms of where they've kind of had a lot of the symptoms of ADHD all the way through a lot of times undiagnosed or just just the way they learned mm -hmm. it shows up in the assessment <clears throat> and so what happens is when i give them it's typically about a 15 page report that i go over with them and you know, we start going through here and it's like there's this this and this and they just sit there and then sometimes they tear up um parents will tear up a lot <laughs> because it finally makes sense and most of the times they've been through so many different types of assessments and it maybe got in the ballpark, but it didn't dial in on them specifically. And so when we can dial straight in on them and find these aspects, and then there's something we can do about it. I'll say, okay, bad news, good news, bad news. We found it. Good news. We found it. <laughs> <laughs> but how I would think it would be so freeing for people to understand that, you know, because a lot of times that self-talk that starts as children, oh, they're not that smart. You can't get that. What's wrong with them? And you kind of hold that, even though you're an adult, a lot of times you hold on to that and to have, have you do an assessment and then say, oh, it wasn't me. It wasn't my own cognitive ability. It was, it was really something I had just had to work on and it wasn't my personal strength at that point and to know it's just something like that, that can be fixed that can be worked on because a lot of times I think people are told well that's what it is you just have to live with it and that's just yeah, what it be and that's yeah. that's so mm -hmm. I think detrimental to people to say oh here's a diagnosis but there's really nothing you can do but now you know what it is well yes because you know sometimes yes getting a diagnosis like oh so there is something here it's like okay I get that but we can't stop there. And to me, that's just the door opening. <laughs> then we have to walk into the room because then we have to figure out, okay, what are we going to do about this? And that's also where I will follow up bad news, good news. And the other good news is there's something we can do about this. And so here's what we're, you know, we're going to do if you want to do this. And, and they'll say nine times, 99.9% .9 of the times they'll say, yes, I want to do something about this. Because suddenly there's a solution to something that they couldn't quite ever put their finger on. And there's a way out that doesn't involve other kinds of more invasive uh, processes. Yes. This is coming in and working on a computer two or three times a week, um, you know, in a fairly pleasant setting. And you can monitor your progress along the way. I would think it would be so 
like a lot of times, a lot of the programs where you go through them and then you're assessed when you're done or, or something like this, where this year you're seeing the progress along the way. You're seeing, you're seeing yourself make the progress. You're not being assessed by someone else. Really. You're assessing yourself and seeing what's working, seeing what's not working. I think the self-empowerment you're giving mm-hmm. people is so huge. Mm-hmm. And I I know I've seen where people really, and when you talked about their faces change, where they're holding on to grief or anger or just that tension and uh, inside them. And when that's released, they look so much different. They just lighten up. And I just want to ask there, I'm just, so I have a team I work with on the other side and they're kind of niggling in a little bit. Do you ever work with people that have maybe been in abusive relationships where they're also going through this assessment to see if there's something they can work on? And how does that work? Same way. Trauma mm-hmm. is trauma. Trauma gets locked into the brain. Um, and I could do a prior dissertation on all of this, but the thumbnail sketch of it is that when people have been under duress and the pandemic caused a lot of duress for people because yes. it's a huge fear-driven, <clears throat> seemingly unsolvable, you know, panic-driven discussion for two or three years. And it left a lot of mark on a lot of people. Domestic violence does the same thing. It's feeling in an uncontrolled, unsafe environment. You don't know what's coming you literally sometimes and that disturbs the entire psyche of the body and the brain system the amygdala system and the brain is what gets triggered that's the fight fight and freeze aspect and survival part of the brain and what can happen with trauma whether it's a single incident or repeated or chronic or whatever it is if that system gets triggered to a certain degree sometimes it doesn't go back to the set point So it gets elevated. And then if there's more trauma on top of that, then that elevation continues to move up to where pretty soon, instead of being at the floor, with an occasional jolt up and down, you're living more toward the ceiling and you never quite come back down into a calm state. And so the beauty of the neurofeedback is that we really can help retrain that part of the brain to calm it down. And what I tell the veterans, it's like reinstalling the off switch that got lost during your military service. The off switch on that system got lost. Your brain doesn't remember how to turn that off. It's on 24 seven. And so by helping the brain remember it's okay to be calm and then reinforcing that, then if you're walking along, you hear a car screeching near you, you still can jump and get out of the way, but you don't need to be living at that level 24 seven because it isn't sustainable. Yeah, I like how you brought that up, how you're always kind of on, you're always on edge, always waiting, always being alert all the time. Mm-hmm. And that happens with the the PTSD, with, with the trauma, with other people who've had trauma, where any little thing will make them kind of be ready to go and bring up the anger, bringing up things ready to go. And to know you can turn that switch back to where it was, mm-hmm. I think that's huge because so many people will say, well... I have PTSD or I've had trauma and I'm going to be living with it for the rest of my life. And for to have that ability to know there is an answer, there is something there that can help. I think that's so huge. And when you're working with, so you said you do the neurofeedback and you can do that anywhere and with trauma. Mm -hmm. 
I'm just, is there, they keep bringing up with, with the PTSD and with trauma. Is there something you said people are always there with them? So even though they're doing this 30 minute session, they have someone there to help them walk yeah. through if they come mm-hmm. through an issue, mm-hmm. because I, I feel like a lot of people would be a little nervous. Like what if I'm there all by myself and something comes you're up not, and I don't know how to well, handle Well, you're not it. with us. You're not alone with us. So You'll be on Zoom like this, so we'll be talking with you and interacting with you, but we run the programs from our clinic, and so you're logging into the system, Um, and then, you know, we're running it, setting it up, and getting going. You have, we have to teach you how to put the sensors on in the right place, but other than that, that, that's your part that you have to do that we typically do in the clinics, and so we like people to have that set up before we get on the Zoom call. But that's the part and the rest of it. We're there the same as if you're sitting in the room with us. I mean, granted, it's not exactly the same as we know. Right. However, it's, you know, it's a, a doable process now that we've all learned that we can live on Zoom, you know, yep. to access things that we hear before we'd never been able to access. And we can now. So it did change the world in that regard. You know, and I love the fact that now, when you felt you couldn't reach the people before when you were in Wisconsin, which is where I'm at. So I, (laughs) and, but now you can actually reach people here Mm -hmm. in ways you couldn't have reached them before. And I feel like with you working with so many different groups and the difference you've been making, the changes where you're able to work with people who are in different situations, like you talked about court mandated systems and things like that, where you have that ability to start working with them, I feel like change is coming up sooner than you may think. So I think with you pushing through and with more people hearing about you and hearing what can be done is something that's going to be so helpful to so many people all around the world. And I just, I just want to thank you for everything you've been doing, because I am so impressed with how you have really taken your intuitiveness and followed it and went down the road and kept looking and kept wanting to learn and kept going for the answers when before and I know before the answers just weren't there it was it was just cover up the symptoms is what it was yeah and and that's so huge for people to know they don't have to cover up the symptoms and instead can get to the to the root of it that's huge Mm. that's huge well it is because that's really the essence of wellness and what we're supposed to be able to do in our lives. We're not supposed to have to live in these states of chronic illness. Um, I, uh, contrary to <laughs> what a lot of the messages are said. <laughs> <laughs> that are being propelled around our world nonstop these days. Uh, it's not the truth. And now it doesn't mean I'm saying people get all your medications either. So, right, right. you know, let's use caution, discernment and, you know, reasonable thinking here. But where the medications really haven't had a good track record for these kinds of conditions in literally getting rid of them, they've become more of a, you know, stopgap process, which is, okay, I've got these symptoms, I can't work because I I can't get out of bed today. So, you know, that's a problem. And yeah, I just want to go on the record. I'm not anti-medication, but I am pro-health. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's true to have that balance in there mm-hmm. because it is, it's a balance. There's yes. there's good with everything and balance it out and work your way through it. It doesn't mean it's one or the other, but it can be an and in there also. 
Yes. And we may be able to resolve it for you. So again, it's not about a cure, but it's like if we can look at these symptoms and we can actually figure out what's causing a symptom and then there's something we can do about it, why wouldn't we go after that? And that brings me to when you talked about the older woman who she came in with the with the with the the walker and then with the cane and then just carrying it. How when you take care of your mental health, yeah. your physical health can change and heal enormously because your mental health is it affects everything in your body, everything. Mm-hmm. And, Yes. And chronic pain takes over. So there are some great books out there that I believe it's Norman Doidge, D-O-I-D-G-E. I I reference him in in my um, book. And that's where I learned so much about chronic pain and the discovery that you can retool the brain even with chronic pain and reclaim the real estate that the chronic pain has taken over in the brain. So it was like, wow, if we can do that, what else can we do? Because he proved it. He proved it. So that was the beauty of that. (laughs) And so are you. You're proving it with the people you're working with, taking care of that, taking care of what's in the brain and the chronic pain starts going away. How amazing is that? So, and I know there's client confidentiality, but why did she come in to begin with? Was it it for the chronic pain? pain? It was for the pain. pain. Mm -hmm. So she was there to help retrain her brain to help with the chronic pain. And Mm -hmm. then along the way, the rest of it fell into place. I love that. It did. And she was like a little bright, shining little character with the purple hair. You know, (laughs) it was great. So we, you know, she had her life back. And it doesn't mean that everyone's going to have the same results, but it does mean things are possible to change. And I think that's really the message that I want to get out is we don't have to just take the status quo. We can seek out other alternatives and find the things that work for each of us. And it's a little bit different for everyone. That's why there isn't one size fits all, you know, for everything. So it's really the curiosity, the digging that we do, we have a lot of access to a lot of things we didn't before. And mm-hmm. how do we make and take advantage of that and make a difference in our, our lives? Because I think it's possible. I think with ADHD, we peel back those labels. And I can't tell you how many diagnostic labels these children have come in the door with. And I just look at these children, and I'm thinking they got diagnosed with that. And I'm sitting here and I'm interacting with this child. And it's like, you know, that's just the inter-rater reliability of diagnosis in my professor profession is pretty weak. There's actually been research articles that have been published on that. And because you're only getting a snapshot of a person for a very few minutes and you can't right. necessarily get it right all the time. It doesn't mean everyone's doing things wrong, but it just means we might not be getting it as right as we could. And Absolutely. I've often said that the wrong diagnosis is not going to lead to the right intervention. You've got to figure out what's going on. And that is very true. And, and I feel, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like once somebody has one diagnosis, then it seems like other diagnoses seem to come with it. And you have this and this and this. And pretty soon it almost feels like they're overwhelmed with, is there anything right about me? Well, it, yeah. And it really pulls a person down uh, in some yeah. cases. So in some cases, getting the diagnosis, oh, I've got this. That makes sense. Now some of this makes sense. I can get it. It's like, yeah, I get that too. I understand that that can be helpful for some people. I've had children come in just with, oh my goodness, I've had them come in sometimes with four or five diagnoses. I've had some children come in on three or four or five different psychotropic medications. 
and none of it's working. And it's just like, okay, we've got to peel this back. Let's figure out what's really going on underneath all this. You know, is there something else? Is there a different story here? Is there a different root cause for this? And when we peel it back and we find it, typically there's something we can do about it. I love that. I love it. And I love the fact that you're looking in all different places, not just pinpointing to one, but looking at a whole, a big snapshot. Like mm -hmm. you said, a lot of times they just don't have time. You've only got a small snippet of time for a lot of the doctors to work with people. Right. So you're going to make a diagnosis based on that. But for you to have that freedom to have more time to work with people, I think is so key. So key. I'm excited for all the people I know you've already helped and those that you're going to continue to help going forward. Thank you. <laughs> Thank so, you. Is there something you'd like to, I know we're getting right, you're getting to your time where you've got to take off. And uh, is there something, anything else you'd like to say before we close today? Well, just if people are curious, I do have a free brief assessment up on my website for ADHD. Um, in the book, there's a lot more details. So a couple of the chapters have really good checklists that parents and teachers can take a look at to see if a child fits into that. And then there are some suggested interventions in the book for the different types of challenges that a child might have, whether it's auditory or visual, or if it's both. So there are resources there. Um, I do think our program works pretty darn well. I'll say that. I like it. <laughs> Based on 15 years of experience. And the whole goal for the book was really to let people know there's a different narrative that we can start talking about with ADHD, with trauma, with with these conditions, we've got a different narrative now, and we need to be holding that narrative a lot more frequently in our conversations so that people can really understand the world has changed and in a lot of really good ways here. And this is just, I think, a part of the change that's coming. And I would really like to see people have access to this to be able to change up their lives in the directions and go, you know, toward hope and, and where they want to be in their life. And meet their goals without feeling like they're being pulled down by things that they feel like they have no control over. And I agree with you. The world has changed immensely and it's bringing about new ways of doing things just like this. Like we talked about doing this, it wasn't possible a few years ago and this is possible now. And all of the advancements and understanding our brain and who we are, that's huge. Yes. And I'm, I'm just, I feel so thrilled to have had this chance to talk with you and to share you with others because there, I know there's so many people that are just struggling with like, why don't I get this about myself? Why can't I have this part work right like other people? And to, to be able to come to you, have an assessment and go, oh, that's something I could work on. I think that's so freeing for people to move mm -hmm. themselves forward. It really is. And up on my website, there's a contact form so people can fill that out. Um, I find it easier to just do a 10 or 15, 20 minute consult on the phone with people than <laughs> if they send me, you know, 15 questions, <laughs> because there's still going to be another 15 questions after those 15 questions, regardless of <laughs> how mm -hmm. I respond. So typically what I'll do is say, you know, include your phone number and maybe some times. Uh, that would be good that I can give you a call and include your time zone. <laughs> the, the time zone is huge. <laughs> Let me know what zone you're in. <laughs> Especially with daylight savings times really messes things up. <laughs> it, it has, it has. So, you know, I'm happy to do that for folks because they usually have a lot of questions about this. And sometimes they can 
you know, give me this, you know, the snapshot of it in the email that they send me. And then I'll have a good foundation for when I give them a ring back to just kind of see if this is something that's going to fit for them. And if they want to do something or answer some questions for them, happy to do that. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, Connie. I appreciate you so much. And I just want to let people know again, and and when you were talking about the books, for those of you who get the book, there's uh, there's different people you've done. And there's one that I was really intrigued with was Abigail. And oh. she is on page 70 and 71 in your book. <laughs> But such a big difference in how that one, how she came in and how she left and showing the charts with her, I think was amazing. She was one of my very favorite little girls that we worked with. And for a long time when we were still, I was still at the university, retired from there and the world's changed, obviously. But I used to do little open houses for the community and her grandmother, after we had worked with her and uh, she they came in one day and she said she wants to give back. So she appreciates everything that you guys did to help her. And she would like to help you with your open houses. So I made her a little ambassador uh, each time we did that. And so she would bring water to the clinicians. <laughs> it would be hot back in the back room when we had a lot of people in there. <laughs> I made her a little name badge and just put her a little clinician in training. And everyone loved it. And she was so sweet. And, you know, that was how she wanted to give back because she had valued for herself how her life had changed. And so it was always so fun to have her and her grandmother come in when we did those open houses. I love that because I, I was drawn to that one right away. And I'm like, oh, Abigail seems like such a such a big shift from where she was to where mm-hmm. she is now. And the difference in how it's helped her is mm-hmm. just changing someone's life to that extent is just huge. So thank you for all you do. Well, thank you for inviting me here and being a part of your show so that we really can let people know there are opportunities out here. Things have changed and we have ways that we can help people that we didn't before. And I'm just happy to be able to get that out there and and hopefully uh, people can get some help that need it. Um, well, thank you. You're Wisconsin. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's all the way to Wisconsin. It's cool. It's it's warm here this week. We're not okay. <laughs> Wait till next week, but you yeah. know tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> so cold. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so thank much, you. Connie. I appreciate it greatly. And for those of you looking, check on her website. It's Connie McReynolds, and that is ConnieMcReynolds.com. And I'll have the links down below along with her Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn is also there. And then check out her book on Amazon, and that is solving the ADH riddle and the real cause and the lasting solutions to his child's struggle to learn. So make sure to go on Amazon, check out her book. You'll find it there. So much great information in there. And you'll learn more about Abigail when you read her yes. book too. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much, Connie. You. I appreciate you for all your time, sharing your knowledge. And for all of you out there, make sure to watch the next episode of Edge Talk Radio, the first and third Tuesdays of the month at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. And if you missed any past episodes, you couldn't make it. No worries. You can listen to the downloadable podcast on pretty much all of the downloadable podcast areas. Or you can watch the interview on my YouTube channel, Angela Zabel, Teacher Coach Medium. And I just want to thank all of you for listening, for listening, expanding, and amplifying 
all of us together, amplifying our universe and sharing the knowledge with others. Thank you so much. And I appreciate all of you. Thank you.